Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive Podcast. My name is Jeff Jensen. On this episode, we're bringing you the presentation from our September UX event, where you'll hear from Danielle Green. Danielle is a user research manager at Jane. She talks about how qualitative research is something that many of us are comfortable starting, but the data synthesis step in the process can be unexpectedly complex. Danielle goes through some scenarios to address common challenges that can lead to poor outcomes. Expect to walk away with a few plans of attack to get your team started with synthesizing and communicating qualitative insights. She'll go over common pitfalls for both small and large product teams and cover challenges with both tactical and strategic research projects. A big thanks to Jane for hosting this meetup at their headquarters in Lehigh, Utah. And finally, be sure to join our community on Slack, where there's always lots of great conversation happening about UX, product management, and more. You can get an invite to our Slack group and find more information about Product Hive at ProductHive.org. So now let's hear Daniel Green's talk on effective qualitative research. talk about research philosophy because in my world there are kind of two camps for research and I used to be one and now I'm the other one and I think it's a good distinction to make because it sort of colors everything that I talk about um, so I used to be what I call a research purist uh, so purists are all about the process they rely very heavily on a strict process and strict methodology uh, to arrive at really clean data on the other side. Uh, they, they tend to have the viewpoint that only trained people should be conducting tests, and uh, they also tend to be a little bit conservative in their interpretations of findings. So I used to be that. Academia trained me to be that. And uh, over the years, I've become what I call a research pragmatist. So uh, my philosophy is all around empowering others to conduct research and um, giving them the tools to do that effectively. So it's more flexible methodology. I do what I need to do to get things done. Um, everyone is conducting tests. People are involved, even if they're not trained, even if they're asking some leading questions and things like that. Um, and then I also tend to have a bias for action. So if I have medium to high confidence in some findings, I'm gonna go ahead and make the call. Um, so know that about me. We can argue over lunch if you'd like, what, which is better. Um, but that sort of colors this entire talk, so I wanted to get that out there. Nice and transparent. Okay, story time. So I'm gonna tell you a story that I think is gonna be pretty familiar to a lot of you. Um, let's say, because we have a lot of designers in the room, let's just say you're a product designer and your business is uh, vetting an idea, they are toying with the idea of a new feature. So they wanna come, come out with this new feature, but they're not sure how it's gonna impact the users, right? Um, so you are super clever and you decide, hey guys, we should do some research. And everybody agrees, everyone's super on board. In fact, the entire EC is, is so excited, they approve your budget same day. And, uh, and you can take, you have to fly out to go see your users. So you can take your two bestest friends, which happen to be your PM and your tech lead. 
really nice world we live in. And so all three of you are super jazzed on research. You know this is gonna provide business value. You fly out to your users. You're doing interviews and surveys and ethnography and you're doing that all day for three days. Lots of days. And then uh, you're all taking copious notes the whole time and everybody's really excited. Uh, you powwow in your hotel. You've got 60 pages of notes and you come to the conclusion that yes, the feature is gonna be great. It's going to meet user needs as long as it's implemented in this way. And you're so excited to go back and tell the business. You go home, you sleep, you come into work, um, leadership's waiting for you at your desk. They're so excited, all of them. Um, and, and they wanna know what you discovered. And you say, well, we're gonna implement the feature and uh, we're gonna do it this way and it's gonna meet user needs and they don't buy it. And they're like, how do you know? And how many people said that? And you said, well, well there's this guy, Bob, and he said this, and well, well Bob is just one person. Um, we expect a full report on all of this stuff, right? Um, so, or even if they do buy it, let's just say they're, they're in. And uh, a month later, they've kind of forgotten what you, they're in their boardroom uh, making, it's decision day uh, once a month and they're drinking scotch and making decisions. And I don't know how any of this works. Um, and, and they're making decisions and, and they can't remember what you found in, in your expensive user research trip. Um, so how can you do this? How can you, how can you communicate findings um, in a way that's sort of impervious to the argument of, but it was just one person, or um, how, how confident are you in this? And there's a huge process, right, when it comes to research, especially uh, qualitative research. There's a big process, but today we're just gonna talk about these two pieces. So there are ways you can approach these challenges at every stage, and I'm just gonna talk about the most elusive and mysterious phase, which is data synthesis. We're also gonna talk a little bit about communication because I think they go hand in hand. Um, and most of what I'm saying is pretty applicable whether you're B2B, B2C, you have a small team, a large team, you're doing tactical research projects or strategic research projects. It should be pretty applicable, this framework. However, you should not blindly accept uh, the process that I'm giving you without kind of taking into account your own unique experiences because there is no magical process for anything in product, spoiler, for anything in product, and anyone who uh, says that there is is probably trying to sell you a mediocre book. Um, yeah, I'm looking at you, Sprint. Um, ooh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, before we get started, I want to make sure um, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page, and I want to clarify some <coughs> definitions because I'm going to be throwing out terms, and I realize they're kind of researchy terms. So I want to make sure we're all on the same page with this. So the first term is rigor. Rigor is thrown around a lot, but what we really mean in research, what we mean rigor, is systematic methodology. And the idea is to apply the same research 
test experience to every participant because you're trying to reduce the amount of noise that comes out of your uh, test environment. So that's a high rigor test. Um, really rigorous tests tend to lead to really confident results. You're confident that the things you found are a result of what you were testing, not just that they were in a really swanky office, for example. Um, tactical and strategic research, I think many of you are probably pretty familiar with this. So um, I throw this around a lot though, so I'd like to clarify. Tactical being design implementation, testing design approaches. Strategic being high level questions that sort of drive a business trajectory, right? And then quantitative versus qualitative. I just say quant and qual because I think it's easier. Um, this is actually tricky and the more you think about it, the more tricky it gets and I'll tell you why. So a lot of people say it's like qual research or quant research, but the, the terms actually came from the type of data you're dealing with. So if you're dealing with numbers, you're dealing with quant. And if you're dealing with words, you're dealing with qual. And then over time, methods started to be associated with the way you get that kind of data. So we started throwing around the term qual methods or quant methods because you ended up with that kind of data. And then it got all out of hand and I know this is my life. Um, and it became quant research and qual research. Uh, the reason I'm calling this out is because traditional, traditionally qualitative methods, as we'll talk about later, uh, you can get quant data from using those methods. So I just wanted to call out, it's about the type of data, not really the, the research and kind of the methodology, but not even really that. And this distinction, at the end of the day, is totally garbage and makes methods forever and ever. Okay, thank you for laughing. So I wanna talk about types of data. Let's pretend you've collected some qualitative data. Oh my gosh, you guys. Look what I have. It's like I planned this. <laughs> I have some qualitative data here. So we're gonna kind of use this. Uh, on your way in, most of you filled out these papers and the question was, briefly describe the main reason you attend Product Hive meetup events. So I have a bunch of just free responses here. So whether or not you know it, you've probably conducted some research that has given you some qualitative findings. Uh, this could be a survey, uh, open-ended responses in the survey. Uh, this could be interviews, pretty casual interviews. Let's just say you ended up on site and you went through and uh, talked to people. Ethnography, for example, like field observation. Participatory design, I threw in diary studies because I think they're cool. And focus groups just don't do those ever. Yeah, thank you for laughing again. Um, just kidding, there's a time and a place, but not here. Um, so you can use these methods to collect qualitative data. And you'll come back with either structured or unstructured data. And this is a really important distinction. So these lovely papers are unstructured data. I'm gonna get everything from like a single word, learning, to a long paragraph, 
uh, to learn and expand my PM knowledge. I'm gonna get all kinds of things in there. Unstructured data. <laughs> Structured data is a little bit different. And this is where I'm talking about how you can use qualitative methods, surveys, interviews, not focus groups. Um, you can use these methods and end up with structured data that really lends itself to being quantified. Um, a good example of this is at the beginning of the talk, I asked you all, like, how many uh, PMs do we have in the room? And you all raised your hand. And let's just say I counted you and there were 50. Um, so, so I'm able to count that data. That can be considered quantitative data, but if I were to ask you that in an interview, let's say, I started an interview with, what's your job title? And some of you would say PM, and some of you would say designer, and some of you would say other. Just kidding, you'd say the other thing. Um, and, and I could go back to my desk and count those. So that's structured data. And it lends itself very readily to being quantified or counted. Uh, you can design a test, and I uh, encourage you to do this. You can design your tests to have structured data. And I especially encourage you to do this if you have a very quant culture in your business. People like numbers. So instead of saying uh, a lot of PMs showed up to Product Hive, you can say 50 out of 150 PMs were at Product Hive. And you can give that percentage or something like that. And sometimes that holds a little more weight with people who are really into numbers. But unstructured data. This data, this is the beast. This is the hard stuff. And that's what we're gonna talk through. We're gonna talk through how do you go about boiling down this kind of data and communicating it in a way that's effective. Advice time. Give yourself time to synthesize data, especially when you're conducting qualitative research that gives you unstructured data at the end. I've seen so many teams who think that they are all powerful and mighty and that they can, in an afternoon of debriefing, come to conclusions around hundreds of things like this. And it's true that in like really low risk projects, you can probably get away with that. If we're just trying to decide whether to move the button from here to here, and you all sit in a room and you all agree that you should probably move it, that's okay. It's probably a pretty low risk decision and you can go ahead and make that decision with a debrief. However, if you're making a really high risk decision like should we spend millions of dollars developing some feature, then you're probably gonna want to systematically process your data. And I just suggest that you give it time. This is why I have a job, guys. Like, I, this takes a lot of time. Good insights take time. And, and when I say time, because I had someone ask me this, actually, um, like, I, I've spent a week just synthesizing data before for a project. So time, lots of time. Okay, I feel like you've got the time piece. So unstructured data, we want to conquer this beast. So, that is a T-Rex. Um, so the first step in the process, typically, this framework, this loose framework I'm giving you that you're all gonna be super skeptical about and really critically think about, yeah. Um, the first step in the process is organization, data organization. And 
the first mini step here is to cancel your meetings. I know, cancel your meetings, get some popcorn, and read all of your data. Read all of these. You can do this collaboratively. Um, you can read them out loud, you can read them in a group, uh, or you can sit and, and really read these. And you guys, they're great. They're usually like, there's some funny ones, or some insightful ones, this is fun. Uh, it'll feel kind of tedious, but it's so worth it. Go through and read. As you read, um, you should also start to get your data into the same format. So like these are all in the same format, and if I really wanted to, I could use tape or something, and I could stick them up on the wall. And, um, and I could use that to, to sort of organize my data. Uh, another way to do it is to type them all into like an Excel or Google Sheets so that they're easy to move around. Uh, Sticketized, that's my word. That's where you write each nugget of information on a sticky note, again, so that it's easy to move around and they're all in the same format. So you're reading them and you're putting them in the same format and that's great. Um, and you'll see as you read through that some general concepts will start to pop out. You'll read a couple that seem really similar. So you'll start kind of soft grouping these things. So that's data organization. Your team is your greatest asset here. So many people want to be involved in the research process, but they can't schedule going on site. Um, a lot of them would really love to help you tease through all of this data. Um, so utilize them. Uh, it's much faster with two or three people. And they're all holding hands. I just realized that. Um, Okay, so the next step, so you've organized. Now we're going to do what's called uh, data reduction. And this is about coding and tagging your data. Um, tags, tags are exactly what you think they are. Hashtag research life. You're assigning sort of like a high level topic to each data point, each little post that you make on Instagram. Um, so. So you're gonna go through and you're gonna tag your data. Um, for example, I bet there's a lot uh, in here that talk about learning. To learn and to network. Uh, to expand my skills and understanding. So this is one that's like, it's sort of loose, right? Um, to expand my skills and understanding of UX to get more ideas too. So this is a subjective call on your part. Does this fall under learning? Does this fall under obtaining skills? Is that the same thing? And what you'll find as you're coding your data, as you're putting them into these categories, that you're gonna iterate on this process. So you're gonna make some categories and then you may find that this was the only one that talked about skills kind of in the context of learning and you're gonna go ahead and put it in learning at the end. Or maybe there's a ton like this and you're gonna tease apart those topics. Um, so it's something that you have to sit there and go through. And this, as you can imagine, gets more difficult the more data you have. Imagine having thousands of free response answers to a survey. That's where your buddy, your very best friend, your PM or your tech lead or your designer, um, that's where you can bring people in and, and start coding these things together. And you'll get a higher level perspective when you do that. 
So you're going to go through and you're going to code and tag. The difference between coding and tagging is uh, coding is a yes or no. So contains learning, yes or no. And I do zeros and ones because I'm a robot. Um, so you'll go through and this can be done in Excel. If you have all of your nuggets all the way down, then you can put contains learning or contains uh, gaining skills, zeros and ones all the way down, yes or no, yes or no. Coding and tagging. Okay, so the, the goal here is to identify clusters or trends, things that kind of hang out together. So uh, the best way to do this is visualizations. This stuff is gonna get so overwhelming if you have thousands of these little nuggets in an Excel spreadsheet. Um, sometimes I'll color code them, which I'll show you an example in a second. I'll color code them so it's really obvious, like, whoa, that's a really big category, or that's a really small category. Um, and then you wanna start clustering. This is a great opportunity to be collaborative. This is like, when you think of research in, you ha in your head, you all have that like sticky note idea. I'm seeing nods and smiles, yes. You think that we're all gonna go in a room and there's gonna be sticky notes and we don't know how they're gonna work out, but it's gonna happen. And that's exactly what this is. So each of these nuggets are gonna be on sticky notes and you're going to create those clusters physically up on a wall. And it's so fun to do this together. That's why we do it so often. That's why I have so many sticky notes at my desk. Yes. As soon as you come up with your clusters, your computer goes black. And this is a huge problem. As soon as you come up with your clusters, um, you want to start coming up with interpretations for those clusters. This is a sticky situation where the more brains you have on this, the better. Um, because you're gonna have to uh, really, really uh, think through and be critical when you're coming up with your interpretations. So I wanna show you a couple examples. Okay, it's, it's okay, it's pretty big. So on the far, uh, your left, uh, I have coding. So this is like contains friend and I have zeros and ones all the way down in that column. The reason I code, um, I do this dummy coding of my data like this, is to run statistics on it later. Uh, you don't have to do that. You could just uh, green and red or something like that all the way down and then sort that column by color and see your frequency. Uh, the next thing, this is right out of SurveyMonkey. If anybody's familiar with that tool, they have an easy way to add tags to data. So uh, these are tags that we've added. We've created a tag called social media and we've created a tag called friends and family. Um, and we're going through and we're uh, tagging each, each raw data point. Uh, this is what I was talking about when you, when you uh, digitalize, digitize, stigmatize, woo. Um, when you, when you uh, type all of your nuggets into a digital format so that you can move them around. And here's my topic, and you'll see how like the colors correspond. So in this case, if, if this document ended here, it's like blue's pretty small. So I'd need to kind of look at that holistically, and maybe I'm even counting those. Like uh, 10 out of 100 people mentioned calendar. So I wanna know more about that. Danielle advice time. This is something that nobody else does. And if you do it, let's have lunch. Um, this is something, so 
so when I come up with my insights, so you're, you're spending so much time with your data and you're color coordinating it and you're organizing it and you're sticky notes and you're finding sticky notes in your backpack and you don't know where they came from in your laundry and they're everywhere. And so you're making your organization and you come up with a oh, calendar. That was an interesting topic or product hive, learning. Most people mention learning. Let's just say 70% of these mention learning. Um, what you need to do then is you need to go back to those 70 data points and read them and say, are they talking about learning? Are they really talking about learning? The, the reason you do this is because when you're in the data mode for too long, it's like a little bias factory in your brain and you start pursuing trends that aren't really there. And sometimes in groups this gets worse uh, because people will get really uh, jazzed about a certain finding and so they'll start mapping other categories to that finding. But when you go back to the raw data, it's like, oh no, only about 30 of these actually said learning. There's something else going on here. So this is my advice to you. It's tedious, again, but you'll save yourself a lot of, a lot of heartache and you'll save your company a lot of dollars if you go back and you actually map those raw data points to your concept. Okay. It's often painful. So I'll spend days in my office, in my basement, with sticky notes, and then I'll come out and be like, I think I've got it. And then I'll do this mapping phase and I'm like, I don't got it. I totally don't got it. And it's, it, it's, um, it's just feeling faster. Okay, so you think, you've, you think you do have it, right? So you've, you've got your big categories, you've got your insights, you've mapped them back to your raw data, and you think you've got this. You're not done though. You're never done. Um, you're not done. This is the stage, again, that's really painful for people, and it's, Taking a break, go sleep. Sleep is great for you, I hear. Um, go sleep and then come back and look at your insights. And this is the exercise that I do. Rank them in order of importance. How important is it that we realize that Product Hive is meant for learning, for example? Um, rank them in order of importance, and then you're going to rank them in order of feasibility. So importance is kind of like, how important is this to your user? And then feasibility is, how feasible is it that the business could actually execute on this plan? Those two rankings combine, and you're gonna pick, I know, top three. You're gonna have like 20 of these things and they're all beautiful and you wanna share them with everybody. And you're gonna share them with stakeholders who care about those individual insights, but you have to know your top three. Because when everybody else is consuming your information and they read one page, that one page, the first page in your deck, the first thing anybody sees has to be that top three. Okay. So, the other thing I recommend that you do, because pushback happens in real world, um, is you take your top three and make sure you have that mapping back to the raw data. So if you have 200 little pieces of paper supporting one of your, one of your top three, then somebody is gonna ask you, how do you know? How do you know top three? 
And you're going to say, this is how I know. These 200 data points all map to that one outcome. OK, so you've got your raw data mapping. Transparency is really key here. You're going to make subjective calls. Like that one, I totally would have put that into learning. I bet half of you wouldn't have. You know, you're totally going to make these calls, and it's just really important that you're transparent, so that when a, stake, a stakeholder who's who's trying to pursue the truth is looking through that, they can see your judgment calls, and it's okay. And you should try to create a culture where all of that kind of stuff is okay. So confidence uh, comes from transparency, and then you also want to. Uh, map out some possible next steps. So here's our top three. We're pretty confident. Let's say we interviewed 50 people and uh, 45 of them said these top three. Uh, we're pretty confident that that's true. That's a pretty good, pretty good result. But you always want to come up with a possible next step. So if somebody isn't confident, because other people sometimes have to put millions of dollars where their mouth is, um, if, if they're not as confident, then you can say, well, we can conduct this test with a thousand people, but it's going to cost you X amount of dollars. So possible next steps are really great because uh, it puts the decision making on the stakeholder whether they want to continue to pursue the truth. So this is my pitch to all of you, and it's that the resources that you spend on research should reflect the risk of the decision. Poor people at Jane, they have to hear me say the word risk like 20 times a day is my favorite word. Um, resources should reflect the risk. So like I was saying before, when you're, uh, when you're in, a, in a situation where you have a low risk decision to make, moving button from here to here, you can just debrief in a conference room, and as long as everybody agrees and saw the same stuff, you could probably move forward with that decision. It's a pretty low-risk decision. Um, however, if you're going to be spending a whole lot of people's time, money, et cetera, on all of these research projects, you want the risk to justify those resources. You also want to put that decision in the hands of your leadership or, or primary stakeholder. So remind them they can get a pretty medium confidence level result, or they can spend more resources and get a high confidence result. And then that's their decision to make. It's all about risk. So this is pulling it all together and reviewing all these concepts, because I know I threw a lot at you, and I shook this in your face. And so I want to come back. <clears throat> so first, you want to think, before you even start a project, you're, you're coming up with a test. These are those weird noises I was talking about. <clears throat> so you're starting to plan your test. You want to think and ask yourself, do I want structured data in the end, or do I want unstructured data in the end? Do I have time to analyze unstructured data? Do my stakeholders want numbers? So uh, asking yourself that question before you even plan your test is got, has got you on the right track. You also want to schedule enough time for the amount of data that you collect. It probably wouldn't take me a week to go through and type these into Excel 
and categorized them and boiled them down into an insight or two. Um, so I would probably only allow for a day or so. Uh, you want to make sure that you have that in your schedule, though. Then you want to organize your data, which is read popcorn. I eat a lot of popcorn. Um, get it all into a common format, whether that's digital or sticketized with all your buddies. Um, then you want to reduce your data by categorizing and coding. And then you want to make sense of those categories by visualizing it somehow. Finally, you want to consider collaboration during all of that. Always evaluate your findings by mapping them back to the raw data points. Center yourself, ground yourself in your data constantly. And uh, triage for effective communication at the end. Top three. Know your top three. Everything else can be still be in the deck, still be in the report, but know your top three. That's it. Easy peasy, right? <laughs> A big thanks to Danielle for presenting, and again to Jane for hosting the event. If you learned some things from Danielle's talk, be sure to share it with your team, or share it on Twitter and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com, and while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events.